and welcome to Resilience, the global adaptation podcast, the show where we'll be exploring the best solutions and cutting edge technologies for adapting to climate change. From floating cities to flood resilient farms to forest seawalls, we're coming to you from the UN's Global Adaptation Network. I'm Liz Mullen Bernhardt. And I'm Marcus Neild. In our podcast, we'll be talking to the most renowned adaptation experts, but we'll also be traveling around the world, virtually of course, to meet people and communities on the front lines to learn about how they've built resilience on the ground. We're really excited to share some amazing climate success stories with you. Thanks for being here as we adapt to climate change one conversation at a time. This episode is all about the race to climate-proof our food systems. Marcus, I think you'll agree with me that there are few things more important to us than where we get our daily meals. We estimate that by 2030, humanity will need 40% more water, and most of our water goes towards food production. At the same time, droughts, wildfires, and floods all take their toll on our food systems. So in many ways, the story of adapting to climate change is a story of building more climate-resilient food supplies. But the world is not short of solutions, whether it's methods for drought-resilient food production, biotechnology, new tech for conserving water, insect farming, and possibly even skyscraper farming. Are these climate-resilient solutions for feeding the planet, or are they just fantasy? To help us find out, we talked to Eduardo Mansour, the director of the Office of Climate Change, Biodiversity and Environment at the UN's Food and Agriculture Organization. The crucial question is, how is climate change going to affect our ability to produce food? The food production is a cause and a casualty of climate change. It's uh, virtually impossible to have a totally non-carbon emitting food production system, but it's maybe one of the sectors that's most impacted by climate change. Let's take, for instance, one climate phenomena that is natural, droughts that climate change are causing droughts to become more often and more severe and in places where we were not expecting to have droughts before. A couple of years ago, a strong drought in Croatia that has strongly affected the olive oil production. Fighting climate change is essential for agriculture because uh, we think about food every day at least three times a day. I think the opportunity is there for us to optimize the conditions that we need to produce the food we need with the minimum impact that it can cause. The good news is that it's possible. I can assure you it's possible. That's what we like to hear. In the race to find disaster-proof food, we're hearing a lot about this term, climate smart agriculture. Could you tell us what exactly that means? Climate smart agriculture is one of the approaches in our toolbox for sustainably increasing agriculture productivity because it's uh, tremendously important for agriculture to adapt. Marcos, we don't have to cut even one more tree to produce the food we need now and in the future. How many are we going to be in the future in 2050? Are we going to be 12 billion people in the planet or 9 billion people in the planet? We already produce food for 12 billion people. We waste most of our food. Climate change is the single most important threat for increasing food productivity. We use too much water to produce food, and climate change is increasing water scarcity. So we have to define ways to produce more food with less water, using species that are adapted to less water resources. There is no other alternative for us. We have different models that can simulate the situation 
and direct us to crops that are more drought resistant. We can use different technologies, including nuclear energy. FAO has a joint unit with the IAEA, the International Atomic Energy Agency, Indiana. We can try, for instance, work on the development of mutants, plant mutants, that have stronger radicular systems that can capture water in lower levels of the groundwater availability. Raising the awareness of communities for adaptation is essential. And, and climate smart agriculture brings that aspect. The third aspect is to reduce, wherever possible, greenhouse gas emissions from the agriculture crops. So talking about low-carbon agriculture, talking about low-carbon livestock. Unfortunately, only the three aspects that I told you are very technical. They are not sufficient because you have to have one essential aspect, which is political will, commitment from governments at different level, commitment from institutions, commitment from producers. So this is, in a nutshell, what we understand by climate-smart agriculture. You mentioned drought. Uh, what about the opposite? What about flooding, which we've seen in many parts of the world? At the coast, there's saltwater intrusion that can affect crops there. There's flooding in parts of the world that have never seen it before. Is there a, a flood-proof way to secure our food? 20% of the agriculture cropland in the planet are irrigated, and they are responsible for 40% of our food production. But you still have 80% of the agricultural croplands rain-fed. So sustainable soil management practices, contention practice, terracing practices go a long way in protecting crops from torrential rains and floods. On those areas that have the infrastructure, like the, the irrigation schemes I'm mentioning to you, we have learned that a combination of gray infrastructure with green infrastructure are the best solutions. There is no better way to protect water springs and to guarantee water quality than protecting watersheds and forests in the watersheds. Forests do not create water, but they provide you clean water. They are the sponge, the filter. Where is the best uh, place to keep the water? Nature gives us the solution. It's in the ground. 90% of the fresh water that we have access in the planet, and it's only 2% of the whole fresh water of the planet, that we have access, 90% of it is underground, should be there. Let me just bring one more on the sea level raise that is impacting very fragile ecosystems in small island development states. The small island states have to pump their groundwater or collect it or harvest it from rains, but it's traditionally scarce water in small island states. But with the seawater raise and the pumping of the water on the ground, there is seawater intrusion. So one of the adaptation matters that is most important for agriculture is adapting agricultural crops to brackish water conditions. Let me bring you a curiosity. You may have heard about quinoa, or quinoa, some people say, which is an Andean crop that grows in the highlands of Bolivia, Peru, Ecuador. You can't imagine how successful we are with bringing quinoa trials in small island development states for adaptation to brackish water conditions. Kenya has a market for chickpeas because of the Asian community. And Kenya was, a few years ago, an importer of chickpeas. Water scarcity management conditions were affecting the type of food of Kenya, which is basically maize. Long story short, there is about 8,000 
farmers now engaged in full-time production of chickpeas, they are better off because it's easier to cultivate in hardship conditions, easier to store, more nutritious, and now Kenya moved from an importer of chickpeas to an exporter of chickpeas, and it entered into the diet. And we are talking about a leguminous crop that also helped fertilize the soil. So this is a win-win-win-win-win situation. It's an awesome case to illustrate because both Marcus and myself are avid chickpea eaters. Um, you've talked about some really great advances that are happening out there that really help us know that we, we are able to continue producing food or switch to different kinds of food uh, despite the adverse climatic conditions. You're referring to some of these really interesting biotech initiatives. How much promise do these biotech uh, innovations hold for climate adaptation? One parameter that we must look at it is human safety food safety, environmental safety. And uh, we, we learn from biotechnologies, it covers a wide range of techniques. When we enter into genetic resources, you, you're really going to the most sophisticated ways of developing it. We have been seeing, for instance, good results with marker-assisted selection and DNA fingerprinting, which allows for faster, much more target development of genotypes for different species. They provide new research methods and they help conserve biodiversity, actually. They don't modify anything genetically in the individual. A lot of people talk about insects as being the food of the future. My 13-year-old son loves them because he loves that ick factor, but other people might have problems with that. Culturally, it can be difficult. Uh, What do you think about insects as a future food? I think the only societies that don't have insect in their diets are the Western society. All the others have. In my childhood in countryside Amazon region in Brazil, there was season of the flies that we would go and collect and roast them. There was no weak factor at all. Sometimes people talk about, oh, the population is growing and we are not going to have a cultivation area for food, so we have to invent new types of foods. The, the threat is not the population growth. The threat is climate change. Of course, population growth has to be taken into account. Changing food habits has to be taken into account. Let's look at the insects as the opportunity for feed. We don't have a factor if we know that we want to increase our productivity in poultry and we want to feed the poultry with a product that can be produced in a very small space, very effectively, with very low carbon footprint. Why not insects? Very easy to produce, very easy to multiply in the small space. Chickens love them. There are so many different food habits. FAO keeps studying. There is a number of publications in Asia, in Latin America, in Africa about the use of insects in diets. The baseline is always safety. But we don't have to be too much afraid of moving out of the, the way that people cultivate for centuries. Only six, seven plant crops form the basis of our, our food habits, and we can diversify it much, much more. So the solution is, is in nature. When I mentioned to you the combination of green and gray infrastructure. What would you recommend to somebody who really wants to adopt a more sustainable diet and doesn't know where to start? What, what do I do? Look, the short answer is to buy locally sourced, fresh, diverse food product and don't waste. Consumer behavior is in the basis of sustainable food systems. It's up to us to balance a nutritious diet that can have low impact on the environment. 
Let me just bring the, the food waste uh, aspect for climate change. If you would put food waste together as a country, it would represent the third largest country emitter in the planet. That's only the carbon aspect of waste, because food waste means waste of water, means waste of uh, human resources, means waste of so many things that is really indecent. To make it even more shocking, there is about 600 million that goes to bed every night hungry. And uh, with the COVID-19 pandemic, this number has grown. The main impact on people on hunger were social unrest and climate change. Farmers in the developing areas that are affected by drought or floods, climate conditions that force them to migrate, are the first ones to suffer from food security. We would say that at least 30 million more people end up hungry because of the pandemic, of climate change, and of social unrest. What is the single biggest thing in adaptation right now that no one is talking about? I would say we are not discussing sufficiently yet the use of renewable energy in food production. I think the potential for renewable energy to help adaptation in the different aspects we discussed. We talk about food waste, for instance. If we could refrigerate more, and uh, we have to refrigerate with renewable energy, and we have to refrigerate at the place where we, we produce, then that could have a very good impact in terms of adaptation, if we could conserve better our food. So I think there is room there to, for us to, to work on it. Maybe I'll disappoint you a little bit to say that when we talk about agri-food systems and agriculture-related projects, we normally talk about the combination of mitigation and adaptation aspects. It's not that linear to differentiate them. When we deal with nature, when we deal with food systems, we deal with both. We can reduce uh, emissions by storing carbon in the soils, the largest storage. There are at least three times more carbon in the soils than in the atmosphere. And we want this carbon to stay there. So whenever you do sustainable agriculture, you are contributing to both mitigation and adaptation to climate change. That's an awesome point, Eduardo, because I think we can't have one with, without the other. It's not either mitigate or adapt. It's, it is both. Uh, and even though we, we shine a spotlight on adaptation, we, we can't forget that we're still fighting a mitigation fight as well. Eduardo, I'd like to just say thank you so much for this interview. I have an enormous amount of ideas for recipes of what I will like to eat this weekend, which would include quinoa and maybe some chickpeas, <laughs> maybe some insect-fed chicken. <laughs> Eduardo, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking to you about all these different topics. One of the most important questions of our time is how we are going to continue food production with climate change. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much, both of you. That was Eduardo Mansour of the Food and Agriculture Organization in Rome. Now it's time for dessert. You like chocolate, right, Marcus? Yes. So do I. As you know, one of the main ingredients in chocolate is the cocoa or cacao bean. And I've been talking to Luis Mabulo in the Philippines about just how important the cacao plant is for farmers in her country who are trying to adapt to climate change. She's a 22-year-old farmer, chef, and entrepreneur. Luis, welcome to our show. It's so nice to talk with you. Thank you so much, Liz. Uh, Luis, can you tell us a bit about why and when you set up the Cacao Project? 
The Cacao Project began in the aftermath of Super Typhoon Noctan in December of 2016 here in the Philippines. And this typhoon had destroyed about 80% of agricultural land in my hometown. So this devastation meant that for months and even years to come, our farmers would struggle to have a stable income from their livelihoods. And at the moment, the Philippines is also one of the most vulnerable countries to hazards brought about by climate change. And we have an economy that is increasingly dependent on agriculture. So in the aftermath of these storms, we began as a typhoon relief effort, but realized that aid after typhoons is just a band-aid solution to an even longer term problem. And we realized that we needed to have systemic long-term solutions to really tackle that. So the cacao project was really built for a number of purposes. And first of all, to distribute assorted crops to help in the recovery after typhoons. But on the other hand, we also identified cocoa as an ideal candidate to help support and supplement farmer livelihoods, as well as reforest land. And we noticed that in the aftermath of storms, it's one of the few trees that were actually left standing and had actually survived through those storms and the wind conditions. And on top of that, it's also an heirloom crop here that is really well suited to our ecosystem. So it has a market and its prices are fully transparent online on Bloomberg, actually. Uh, so cocoa enables farmers to have another income stream that can actually be intercropped in their existing farms and could help reforest lands that were deforested or degraded or affected by the aftermath of these storms so that we could build resiliency and climate adaptability in these coming years. That's great. Uh, Louise, you're you're still young and very inspirational. But when you started the Cacao Project, you were even younger. You were 18 years old. Where did your passion come from? I've always had this love for food systems. When I was 12, I was a finalist to this TV reality show called Junior MasterChef, which catapulted me into a very early culinary career. So I was training probably 14 to 18 years old under some of the world's best restaurants and chefs. And I would host pop-up dinners that eventually went on to build an advocacy of farm-to-table cuisine where seasonal and sourced from local farmers that promote our culture. So when I was in university, right before the cacao project, I noticed that our farmer populations were aging as a result of a lot of farms in the community becoming abandoned. So there are a lot of negative stigmas in the Philippines that's associated to agriculture and being a farmer. And because of that, the average age of farmers in the Philippines is 57 years old. If young people like me or young people who uh, are in these communities don't intervene, we could have a food security crisis in as little as 15 years. So that was kind of um, really the whole idea of when I started the cacao project. It came up because of urgency to help uh, in the aftermath of storms, but also in the idea of ensuring that our livelihoods are not only sustainable, but appealing to young people so that we could have a more food secure community in the future. That's really exciting. So it sounds like you've got a real farm to fork kind of mentality with more people getting involved in food production and also um, bringing it to the table. I'm sure you're getting a lot of people excited about food in the Philippines. Oh, for sure. <laughs> um, Louise, can you can you tell me a little bit about what do you think life was like for farmers now? How is that different from before the project? Uh, a lot of our farmers have started diversifying. For example, they have short-term crops. So farmers have been able to make an additional income onto their existing livelihoods. There's a lot more vegetables and different assortments of crops available uh, in our hometowns. There's also a lot more environmental consciousness weaved into the practicality of farming practices. So many of our farmers are learning to make their own fertilizers, their own pesticides, foliar sprays, 
out of food waste or out of the crops that we produce. And it comes at a minimal cost to them. So we find that farming sustainably and utilizing natural farming practices and a combination of all of these new and traditional knowledge can be more cost saving, but also enable us to protect the quality of our soils and prevent soil acidification that happens after using synthetic chemicals. And it also helps us create more bountiful harvests. We're also finding ways to prepare more before and after storms. And farmers are also more conscious of their value to the economy and communities, but they're also more enterprising and knowledgeable about supply chains and demand. And um, rather than planting what they've always planted before, they're actually being more strategic about how they approach that system. Great. It sounds like a really holistic approach. (laughs) How do you think the Cacao Project is specifically helping farmers adapt to climate change? Oh, yeah, there's there's quite a lot of ways that we're helping farmers adapt to climate change. So for one, we're training on building resiliency in preparation for typhoons and how to bounce back after typhoons, whether it's using the mulch or actually uh, planting more in the aftermath um, and also help strengthen our forest cover so that we have windbreakers when there's strong winds and uh, help kind of absorb rainwater to prevent flooding. And on the other hand, through the project, we want to be able to reforest underutilized land or plant in areas that have previously seen deforestation as an after effect of typhoons. And now that we're experiencing these increasing intensities of typhoons and instances of drought and unexpected storms, I think it's more imperative than ever that we at least try to adapt to new models of farming, test different ways that could transition us into climate adaptability. So on top of that, we're looking to into the capacity of our agroforests to sequester carbon and through proper soil management, allow the biodiversity in our soils as well to do their work in sequestering and storing greenhouse gas emissions. So that way we have preparations in place for potential climate emergencies, as well as contingency plans and the after effects of that. And through our work, perhaps help in combating climate change and build models that could be replicated elsewhere too. Louise, you mentioned that you're a chef. If you had to demonstrate on a plate right now how the production of food should adapt to climate change, what would be on your plate? That is a challenging question. Uh, I, I like it. A family dish that my parents have always cooked for me, and it's called inabrao, and it involves uh, local in-season vegetables. Many of them we simply forage from the backyard because they grow like weeds, particularly Malabar spinach. Um, this ingredient, I don't know its English name, but it's called pansi pansitan. It's like a lovely heart-shaped herb. We also have water spinach that grows in any wet soil or water sources. And another dish I would say is this chicken soup called tenola. So it's a Philippine version of chicken soup, but it's served by every Filipina mother on a rainy day or on a day when her kids might feel weak and want a little bit more heartiness in their meals. And it contains green papayas that are harvested before that small window of ripeness. That way we don't have so many ripe papayas that would go to waste moringa which is a nutrient-dense leaf that grows wild. And I call it organic by neglect because it just grows on the sides of the street and people can pick it out uh, whenever they feel like it. And it would also contain chilies that would be propagated by the birds here. So this dish is a really historical soup that goes back before a time before consumerism and supply chains existed when people would actually rely on the food that was sourced locally. And of course, I think I would possibly serve cocoa. You know, I would make a dessert that would be sustainably sourced cocoa from our hometown. It's either unsweetened or sweetened by the local coconut sugars and probably serve it as like a molten hot drink with hints of the chili and coconut milk that we have here. And it's thickened to the point that it's actually sticky if you drink it. 
It sounds awesome. It's a rainy day here in Bonn today, so I would love it if my mom or you made uh, some soup and some hot chocolate. That was absolutely delicious and very comforting and very sustainable. <laughs> um, Louise, I have one more question for you. If you had to give a message right now to the world's leaders about climate change, what would it be? Well, with a recent IPCC report, it illustrated quite well that the climate emergency is now, and that's something my community has known for a long time, since we were at the front lines of this climate emergency and we experienced its effects the most. But what we do need is policy and systemic changes that make way for just transitions and help put an end to unsustainable models that have run our world for so long and so rampantly. So we're not about to just wait around for solutions. We expect immediate action now. And I think something that world leaders also need to acknowledge is that in the strive to reach forward, sometimes all you have to do is reach back to the knowledge of our elders who once upon a time lived in a world where farming was just farming and food was just food, um, and recognize that there's practical solutions to problems that already exist. We just need to exit this culture of consumerism and products being the main solution and look to empowering people on the ground or at the grassroots level who do have real answers. So people in my region, we've had solutions and sustainable farming for a very long time. It's just a matter of bringing that back and merging it with modern knowledge to transition us more steadily into an inclusive world. Something that world leaders also need to acknowledge is that everyone has the capacity to be stewards to the creation we've been entrusted with as humankind. It's just a matter of giving way to the people, no matter what industry they're in, what region they're from, or what background they're from, just giving them the platform and the knowledge and space to just enact that mandate. Because I think all of us intrinsically want to do something good for our planet. Louise, it's been a real inspiration for me to speak with you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Liz. It's a pleasure to be here. That was Louise Mabulo, who founded the Cacao Project in the Philippines. Lots to think about there. And as ever, you can find out more about the work of our guests in the show notes. Thanks for listening. There are more adaptation success stories in our other episodes, so please do listen to those, subscribe and share. We're Liz Mullen-Bernhardt and Marcus Neild, and you can find out more about our organisation, the UN Global Adaptation Network, in the show notes. This has been Resilience. Keep adapting. Penny Dale is the producer, 